Thank you, praise and worship team. And thank you, Jesus. Oh, man. How you guys doing? You seem a little quiet today. What's your problem? You're tired from running a half marathon or something? Good to have you here. Isn't it good to have Jessica here? Good to have you here, too. Lois, it's good to have you here. And we are going to miss you, sis. Love you. Hey, I love you, too. God loves you. God loves me. It's a good place to be. Romans chapter 3 is a good place to be, too. Uh, we are still going through the Bible, and as I mentioned uh, a week or two ago, we are not going to rush through the New Testament just to say we got through the Bible. All right? Uh, no point in rushing through the Bible when we are always going to be preaching from the Bible, so let's just do it right. Uh, it's not really, you'll think, you might think different after today, after we spend uh, pretty much all of this morning in Romans chapter 4. It really isn't my intention to do a verse-by-verse study of the rest of the Bible. But there's some parts we need to linger on. And, uh, you know, we are uh, laying some theological groundwork. As I said in my introduction to the book of Romans, this is, in many ways... Paul's most important letter. It is the closest he comes to a systematic theology. Uh, The truths that he uh, puts forth in Romans, he puts forth in other letters at different points, but but never so much in such a clear and complete way as he does in this letter. Now, as you'll see, and as you know, because I know most of you have read it, he will get in this letter to things like our relationship with uh, one another, our relationship with our family, our relationship with the government, some, uh, some practical matters, how we live this life since we are Christians. But he's spending a lot of time in the early parts of this letter establishing right doctrine. And this is important because there are many who believe they may never come out and say it this way, but there is a clear um, leaning among many churches, many ministers who really what they're saying is the important thing, uh, what we are aiming for at the end of the day is right relationship with our fellow man, treating people the way God wants us to treat them. Uh, living in harmony with our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors. And that's really it. And if, and there are some who would be a little further outside orthodoxy who would go as far then, of course, to say, uh, it really doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are, what your theology is. If the outworking of that is uh, you're loving your neighbor and you're loving your family and you're living in harmony with humanity, that's the main thing. And Paul is very clearly establishing that, no, it's not. That right relationship with God is first and foremost. Okay, we, that, that outranks every other consideration. Jesus himself said, the right relationship with me is going to cause the dissolution of some relationships in your life, right? I came not to bring peace, but a sword, and it's going to separate families, okay? Uh, He understands that we're going to make enemies simply by believing the right thing, but we're not to lay aside our belief in the name of getting along with everybody. Now, Paul himself said, you know, hey, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. You know, don't go looking for fights, 
But some people, you're going to be a stumbling block just because of what you believe. Uh, and the number one thing is being in a right relationship with God. But he also is, makes the point there's only really one way to be in right relationship with God. And therefore, and, and if you're not in a right relationship with God, then every other relationship is really based on false premises anyway. Everything flows from that. And so it is important to believe the right things about God, about sin, about righteousness. So he begins in Romans chapter 1, after his greeting, after putting forth his purpose for writing the letter, expressing his desire to come visit the Christians in Rome, he starts with a troubling and yet very accurate description of the state of fallen man. And speaking of which, I found this uh, great quote by Malcolm Muggeridge. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Muggeridge and his writings. Uh, Muggeridge was a uh, a very cynical uh, genius. He was a literary genius. He was editor of Punch Magazine in Great Britain for a number of years. Uh, Traveler, scholar, uh, like I said, cynic, and a very, very much a latecomer to Christ. He came to Christ very late in life, uh, but had some brilliant things to say. And here's this quote of his. He said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. What's he saying? Anybody who pays attention, you look at how the Bible describes mankind, and then you look at the world around you, and if you are awake, if you are paying attention, unless you have your head in the sand, you have to realize that the humanity that Paul describes, for instance, in Romans, the second half of Romans chapter 1, is a very accurate description of the world we live in. Okay? Um, And yet, people argue harder against the very idea of depravity. It's like you, you live like you want, you believe like you want, do what you want, think what you want, as long as you don't hurt anybody. And then we have whole new definitions of what it really means to hurt somebody. And uh, well, I won't go there. I'll, get, I'll start to get political or something. But anyway, he starts out with a very simple observation and makes it clear that those who have sunk to such levels of depravity are without excuse because God has left more than just vague clues about who he is, about what he expects. We have the testimony of creation that attests to God's existence. And we have the moral law in us that affirms God's law. Go back and read Romans chapter 1. I told you, you need to do that occasionally anyway, but if you need a refresher, go ahead. I'm not going to re-preach it. Go ahead and read it if you want to. Not now. Listen to me now. He continues in uh, Romans chapter 2 and 3, differentiating between the righteous and the sinner. And he's saying that the difference there is not a matter of degrees of evil. What Paul really makes clear in chapter 2 and 3 is you are either righteous or you are a sinner. And if you are able, with your God-given sense with your conscience, with your intelligence, if you are able to judge between good and evil in another person, if you are able to look at somebody or something that they did to you or somebody else and say, they should not have done that, and every one of us is capable of that, he's saying if you are judging somebody else, that means you are capable of differentiating between right and wrong, and that means you are guilty too. (sighs) 
Then he drops this bomb after he makes it clear that you are either righteous or unrighteous, righteous or a sinner. Then he says, guess what? Nobody's righteous. Nobody, not even one person. It is impossible to be justified by the same system that allows us to judge between right and wrong. And that's the law. It's the moral law. It's God's law. He's saying if you, uh, if you have understanding of right and wrong, then you are wrong. And that includes everybody. We all know we have violated the law. Then, finally, he gets to the good news at the end of chapter 3. Let's reread this. This is where we ended last week, beginning in verse 21. Romans 3.21. Junk all over my glasses here. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins of that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude, listen to this, this is so important, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. He could not say it any clearer than that. <clears throat> All right? Remember, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, and probably uh, uh, ma the majority of them were Jewish converts, uh, but even those that weren't were still strongly influenced by Jewish thought. And, and there's nothing really wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's the... the the Jews are the ones through whom the gospel originally came. But they're having a hard time breaking free from the idea of the law. And so he's writing, he's addressing this stuff because they still feel like uh, there's elements of the law, particularly circumcision, that they need to keep. So he lays it out. Look, even those of us with the law, all that did was uh, convict us the more fully because we had it spelled out to us. We knew exactly what we had done wrong, and every one of us violated it. But the whole world is guilty. So if the redemption that comes to the world, to those without the law, saves them by faith, that's the same thing that saves us who are of the circumcision. All justification, all of it, comes through faith apart from the law, okay? <clears throat> the law served a purpose, but the law was never meant to save. It never could. So the next thing he's going to hit, especially, you know, this is, this is a big deal since, since the, the, the Jewish thought and the Jews themselves are at the center of this. This next subject is one that's going to hit this head on. And that subject is the person of Abraham. Now, you remember that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had two heroes, Abraham and Moses. 
Moses was their great prophet. He was the lawgiver. Uh, Abraham was the father of their very race. Abraham ranked highest, actually, because they put so much stock in their identity as Jews. They, they proudly wore the sign of circumcision as evidence that they were Abraham's descendants. And they felt that that made them special. Jesus, you know, once they, when they bragged, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus, remember what he told them? God's able to raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones. So let's dive into this in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of man, of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Notice there's nothing in there that, that Paul is quoting David on. There's nothing in that verse about blessed is the one who does not sin. There's no such person. Righteousness was imputed or credited to the person who believed even under the law. There was, remember, <clears throat> there was this standard of righteousness that God made clear. It was always there. They knew it before the law. But God uh, gives them this code, this specific code. Here's how, these are, these are my specific expectations. You don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. And then includes, in his mercy, he includes the sacrifice system because he knows they're going to blow it. He said, when you blow it, uh, when you fail to keep the law, there has to be atonement. There has to be payment. So in case you do this sin, here's what you do. You bring this animal and you kill it this way and you lay it on the altar this way and the priest gets this and you get that uh, and you offer it as payment for your sin. Now they understood that this really didn't pay for it or they were supposed to understand. So built right into their system to, uh, for judging righteousness is something to keep them righteous even when they blow it. All right, but he spells it out here. Uh, David understood that they weren't necessarily made righteous by these sacrifices, but because of their obedience, what, what did their obedience do? It demonstrated their belief. And those who believed had righteousness credited to them. Abraham believed God, therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't earn his righteousness, and in his own flesh, he was not righteous. Then, picking it up in verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And you can find the answer by going back to Genesis chapter 15. But he gives it to you here. Not well circumcised, 
but while uncircumcised. That verse where it says he believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, was accounted to him as righteousness, was two or three chapters before the covenant of circumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. (coughs) Excuse me. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who uh, those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. He hammers this verse after verse after verse. This Abraham, who you are putting so much stock in, you say, we are the children of Abraham. And the proof of that is in our circumcision. And we proudly carry this on to demonstrate that we are of the favored race. We are the physical descendants of Abraham. And we carry in our flesh the sign of that covenant. And Abraham was great because he was the father of our race. And Paul says, yes, Abraham was great. What made him great, though? He was the recipient of this blessing of imputed righteousness. But you need to understand, he received that before he was circumcised. So what made Abraham great was not the circumcision, not that covenant moment, but the fact that he believed God. This righteousness was imputed to Abraham before the covenant. The covenant was just a sign, the covenant of circumcision. So he's saying there, if there's something special, if there's something worthy of emulating about Abraham, we have to go back before the circumcision and see what it was. And I'm telling you, says Paul, it's faith. All right, let's read on. Uh, Verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who... Contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Now we're getting to the meat of this. Let me explain what's going on here. When it's talked about he believed God and that was accounted to him as righteousness, this is what he believed. Now his first step of obedience, and remember, uh, I've said this before, obedience is the highest form of faith. If we really believe God, we will do what he says to do. And God told Abraham to leave, get up out of his country, Ur of the Chaldeans, and go to a land that he was going to show him. God, uh, Abraham did that. And when he got there, he says, look, he said, I want you to walk the length and breadth of this land. And I want you to look at the land. I want you to look up into the sky and count the stars because that's the way your descendants are going to be. It's going to be so many. It's going to be like the sand on the seashore. It's going to be like the stars in the heaven. He's saying this to an old man who didn't even have one child yet. He's promising him descendants. This was the promise. Okay. So when it says hoping against hope, he's saying in the natural, there was no hope. There was no logical reason to expect the fulfillment of this promise. And yet he hoped 
Why? Because he believed God. And he says, this God he believed, it wasn't just some random idea. I'm hearing this voice, I guess I'll believe it. He's believing the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. I need to say something about this phrase. And in your Bible, it might say, and you might be more familiar with the phrase, calls those things which be not as though they were. And I've heard sermons, and you probably have too, that encourage us to do the same thing. Hey, we're supposed to call those things which be not as though they were. Now, in a sense, that's right. But that is not what this verse is talking about at all. I'm not trying to burst anybody's bubble. We have plenty, plenty of things, uh, plenty of promises, plenty of encouragement to speak faith-filled words to circumstances that are against us. Say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. All things are possible to him who believes. I can do all things through Christ. We walk by faith, not by sight. My God shall supply all his needs, all of your needs according to his riches and glory. By his stripes we're healed. We have specific promises and we have commands to speak his word in these situations. We can speak to our circumstances, right? But that's not what this verse is talking about. What he's talking about is Abraham had a very solid reason for putting his faith in God because the God who was speaking to him is the God who literally gives life and calls those things which be not as though they were. He's talking about creation itself. Uh, the phrase is ex nihilo. He calls something out of nothing. When God made the earth, he didn't make it out of anything else. When he made the heavens, the stars, the universe, he didn't make it out of stuff and form it. He did that with man. He formed man out of the dust of the earth. But he spoke the earth into existence. He spoke light into existence. He just called it forth. That's what God does. That's not what you and I do. We cannot speak and create ex nihilo. We can speak authoritatively only on the authority of God's word. This is where the faith message can get dangerously out of balance if we're not careful. We, can't, we cannot rise to the faith level where we call something out of nothing. When we talk about calling those things which be not as though they were, we're talking about I'm speaking to a circumstance and I'm commanding it to be different. That's valid. That's scriptural, but that's not calling something that isn't into existence. All right? To give a concrete example, if there is sickness in my body, I am convinced, I am persuaded from scripture that legally speaking, spiritually speaking, Jesus Christ bore all my sickness. That sickness has no legal right to remain in my body. And so I believe the scriptural way to pray, you know, Jesus didn't say go pray for the sick. Jesus didn't pray for the sick. He healed the sick. His sickness be gone. See. And so I speak to my body. I speak to it like a mountain. Be thou removed and be cast into the sea. Not my body, but the sickness. Hey, I speak to certain elements of my body and command them to be gone and be cast into the sea. 40 pounds of fat be gone and be cast into the sea. Why not try it, right? Well, I'm reading the Bible and speaking the word while I'm shoveling ice cream down my throat or something like that, right? Anyway, uh, it, it's this verse is actually better than that common understanding. 
It's not telling us to call things that are not as though they were. It's actually better than that. It is a reminder. It is a key. It is a key to understanding faith itself. The reason Abraham and Sarah were able to believe God is because they understood who God is. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence. And if he says, we're having a son, we're having a son. I want you to look over at Hebrews chapter 11, give you a little preview. We're a ways from getting to Hebrews. But in Hebrews 11, this is known as the hall of faith where the author of Hebrews, God through the author of Hebrews, uh, starts listing Old Testament example after Old Testament example of men and women who lived by faith, who exercised faith and inherited God's promises by faith. And when he gets to Sarah in verse 11, he says this, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Might as well read verse 12 too. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now I want you to notice a couple things about that because I believe in the sovereignty of God. God is God and he can do anything and yet this verse tells us that the reason Abraham and Sarah were able to have Isaac is not just because God spoke it, but because they believed it. Well, God was going to do this regardless. Don't argue with me. Argue with Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah received that ability because God is sovereign and God made it happen. No, because she judged him faithful who had promised. I've said this before, but it's, it's, you'll hear it again and again and again. Do you remember the old, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it? Everybody used to have that little, not everybody, but a lot of people had that sticker on their refrigerator or on their uh, bumper sticker on their car or something. Then I heard some very uh, self-righteous person say, I've read that, but I'll tell you what the Bible says. God said it, and that settles it, whether I believe it or not. But that's not true. It's not true. What God says can have zero effect on my life if I fail to believe it. Do you know, you know that's true, right? That is all through the Bible. Jesus, Jesus is the clearest picture we have of God and his will. And he said it again and again. Your faith has made you whole. Be it unto you according to your faith. People say, well, Jesus, the things that he did were just to demonstrate he had power over sickness, power over demons. Well, then why didn't he just say, receive your sight according to my power, according to my messiahship, according to my godness, be healed. My power has made you whole. He never did. Your faith be it unto you according to what you believe. Nothing is impossible if you believe. So much responsibility on the hearer of the promise. And it spells it out right there in Hebrews. This is how she was able to conceive, by judging him faithful who had promised. Now I want you to look over here at Genesis chapter 3. 
I'm going to look a little bit closer at this. And I know we probably talked about this very thing when we were back in Genesis, but it really is worth looking at here and now, considering what we are on. Genesis chapter 3, this is, uh, we, have to, we have Genesis 1 and 2 telling us about creation, and then right off the bat, here's what happens. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Had God said that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's as far as we need to read, because this is what he did. God gave them the whole garden to enjoy told them to eat anything they wanted in the garden except the fruit of one tree. And he told them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So then the devil shows up. We know this is who the serpent is. It tells us that very, very clearly in Revelation, that serpent of old, which is the devil. And he says to the woman, did God really say not to eat of the fruit of the tree, the fruit of all the trees? And he said, he really said it. I mean, to be clear, he said we could eat all these other trees, but he did say not to eat of this tree. Uh, Because he said we'd die if we did. The first place the devil will try to trip you up is the first place he tried to trip Eve up. Has God really said? The first place he will try to throw you is in challenging your knowledge of God's will. Did God really say that? And so if you come back like Eve did, I'll tell you exactly what God said. I can eat of every tree in this garden except that one. And I'll tell you why I can't eat of that one, because he said if I did, I'd die. What did the devil come back with? You will not surely die. Let me tell you why God really doesn't want you eating. You're right, you're right, you're right. God did say not to eat of it. But now let me tell you why God really said that. He knows that if you do, you'll become like him. So the second place the devil will try to trip you up, if you demonstrate that you know what God said, God will try to trip you up on the character of the one who said it. Yeah, God said that. But it's because he's a mean God. He's a petty God. He's a capricious God. He's an untrustworthy God. Yeah, he said it, but he won't do it. And this is where most people get tripped up. They know the word, but they really don't trust God to keep the word. Why did God say that? Well, he never really promised he would do the things he said. He just wants to see if I'll believe him, even though he's not going to do it. But Abraham and Sarah were able to receive the ability to conceive a child well past the age of childbearing just because they trusted, not, not just because they knew what God said, but because they knew there was something about God himself that they could trust. I don't know every little thing, you don't know every little thing that took place in the day-to-day life of Abraham and Sarah and their story. 
But Hebrews tells us that Sarah knew God well enough to make a character judgment about God and that that enabled her to be in faith and that that faith was instrumental in bringing the promise to pass. But remember, the devil will try to trip you up, stir up doubt, and derail your faith by questioning your knowledge of what God said. The solution to that, read your Bible. Know what he said. And the second, if he challenges in your life, as he will, the character of the God who spoke these things, the solution to that is to know God. You know God better, and you really do that by reading the word too, but also in prayer and in fellowship and in service and in worship. Now, back to Romans. Got one more major point to make before we get done today. Romans chapter 4. There it was. Beginning in verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. This is right after he's talking about the promise, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I've covered it before, but it's way too important to skip over. First of all, depending on what translation or version you are reading, your Bible says something different right there. Because the King James and the New King James indicate that Abraham's faith response was to not consider the circumstances. What were the cir- what was the promise? The promise was you're going to have a son. What was the circumstance that was contrary to that promise? Their bodies are very old. And it says here that he did not consider his body now as good as dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb, but in faith believed and inherited the promise. Paraphrasing. Uh, A really more accurate translation says Abraham considered his body and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet yet responded in faith to God's word. Why am I making a deal out of this? Because, again, I have heard sermons, and some of you have too, that essentially say the key to being in faith is to not consider the circumstances. And therefore, if you ever catch yourself thinking about the things in your life and in your circumstances that are contrary to the promise, then you're really not in faith. Faith doesn't consider the circumstances. It's wrong. It's wrong, and it'll heap guilt on you, and it will rob you of faith. Let me tell you what's going on here. There is a threshold of faith, and I borrow that phrase from Doug Jones way back in my Rhema days. There's a threshold of faith that you come to when the promise contradicts your circumstances. When the promise of God contradicts what what uh, some might consider to be evidence of a competing truth claim. And you look at the promise, it says one thing. You look at the circumstance, it says another. You are not in fear just because you consider the circumstances. But you are not in faith just because you know the promise. You know the promise. You can consider the circumstances. And if you remain loyal to the circumstances, 
or to the conclusion that circumstances would lead you to, if those circumstances contradict the promise, then you are in fear. You are out of faith. You are among those that shrink back, as Hebrews puts it. But if you look at the circumstances, and those circumstances are contrary to the promise of God, and you remain loyal to the promise despite those circumstances, then you cross that threshold into faith. So here's Abraham and Sarah, way too old to have kids. You know, Abraham, long after he'd moved into this land, still living in tents, God had blessed him. Blessed him on every side. It was, he was man. He was the richest man in the, in the territory, maybe in the world at his time. And he says to God, God, you have blessed me. But what's it all for? I don't have an heir. Eliezer of Damascus, a servant born in my house, he's going to get everything when I die. And God just tells him, no, Eliezer's not going to inherit your wealth. Your son is. And at different times, both Abraham and Sarah laughed when God suggested that. Their response was not immediately, well, you're God. You say so. Praise the Lord. It's going to happen. They're like, are you kidding me? We're way too old to have kids. They looked at the circumstances. So there they are. Okay. We want a son. And God has said, you will have a son, an heir that is a product of you two. And they're like, that's a good promise. And yet, look at our bodies. This is not the way it works. 100-year-old man, 90-year-old woman. So we've got God's promise. We've got these circumstances. If we only look at the circumstances and we look at all the evidence around us, we're going to remain loyal to that but there's nothing wrong with knowing what the circumstances are. Then we look at the promise. This promise itself is not enough to get me to totally ignore these circumstances. But when I look at the one who made this promise, oh, he said it. The God who's telling me we're going to have a child, which is pretty unlikely according to the circumstances, is the same God who gives life to the dead and spoke the universe into existence. I can believe that God. And we step over into faith despite the circumstances. What is going to take you, what's going to take me, us, across the threshold of faith? The knowledge of him who promised. Not the promise itself. Anybody can make a promise. But God has shown himself faithful and he's gone to great expense in order to make his faithfulness known to us. So much of the Bible is useful. And there are so many Psalms that point this out. When David is writing, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. He just recounts God's, God's dealings with him and the whole nation of Israel and all mankind through history. The God who did this, who did this, who did this, who did this, because we stir ourselves up by way of reminder about everything God has done. And we realize this is a record of faithfulness. This is a record of goodness. This is a record of grace and mercy and blessing. This is a God we can trust. And then we get excited when we see the promises in his word. And thank God, we have the very Holy Spirit of God in us to bear witness to his love 
his faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy, his grace. But really the clearest and most trustworthy way that he has revealed himself is right here in the word of God. Uh, Praise the worship team. You can be making your way up here as I close this out. I want to read a few more verses here in chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He kind of... This is where he starts, and then he goes off talking about how Abraham received, by faith, received this ability, received this blessing. And then Paul points out it was that very belief, that very faith, that trusting God, that that's what was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, not the circumcision and not any doings of his own. Simply believing God was, God's. I'm going to call that righteous. I'm going to call you righteous just for believing me. And then look where he takes it. This is beautiful. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. In other words, it's telling us, see what Abraham did? Abraham believed God and it was imputed, that God imputed righteousness to him. He's saying here, God didn't record that just so we could read about how Abraham was declared righteous. It's not just a matter of history. No, what's it for? But also, verse 24, for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. What a beautiful, beautiful part of the letter this is. He just nails it. He does this great exposition on the faith of Abraham. We all admire Abraham. He's the father of the faith. You respect him more than anybody in history, and I understand why. Because you are proud descendants of the the covenant of circumcision. Let me tell you what was really great about Abraham. Abraham was great in God's eyes. He was righteous in God's eyes because he believed. You understand the greatest, the, the whole story that the life of Abraham revolves around really is the birth of Isaac. And the whole reason that was able to happen was because of the faith that Abraham and Sarah had. Despite circumstances that were severely contrary to the promise, they believed it. And the reason they believed it is because they understood something about God's character. But the great thing is, not just that they were able to have a son, but that because of this belief, God looked at him and said, I'm going to call that kind of belief righteousness. And God recorded this whole thing, not just so we could read about how righteous... uh, how how, uh, blessed Abraham was, but to remind us and to show us that this is how we are declared righteous. We believe in the same God who declared Abraham righteous because of his belief. We receive the same imputed righteousness for believing in that same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is salvation in one chapter, and it's beautiful. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. We'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org.